Well, thank you, Pastor Larry. Um, it is a joy and a privilege to stand before you this morning and um, get to share what the Lord's been, been teaching me. We're going through our series called, Oh, the Places We'll Go, and looking at different uh, stories from Scripture, men and women who uh, are going along their own path, and then they encounter the Lord and have a, a decision in front of them. Will they follow their own path, or will they follow the Lord? And we've looked at people like Peter and, and Gideon, and we've got a lot more uh, stories to, to cover this summer. Uh, I think about the concept of an open door that's, that stands before each and every one of us. We're in a room, there's a door in front of us, and we get to choose whether or not we walk through that door, or will we stay seated in our own comfort zone. Some people are, uh, are blessed with the opportunity to have multiple open doors in front of them, and it's kind of an adventure to see, you know, God, let's, let's take this journey through door number three and see where it leads, and, uh, you know, all this uh, idea of having a choice in front of you. Have you ever thought about how many decisions that you make on a daily basis? There was a researcher from Columbia named Sheena Iyengar, and uh, that's the, the university, not the country. Uh, but Sheena did some research and said that every single day the average person uh, makes 70 conscious decisions. Seven zero conscious decisions, and that's anywhere along the spectrum of chocolate or vanilla. Uh, what are we going to do for lunch today? What am I going to wear to church today? And then, you know, as it progressively gets more serious, like uh, where are we going on vacation? How do I address the situation with my family? How do I talk to them about the events of this past week? Or, um, you know, how do I approach a conversation with my spouse? And these decisions that we make. Uh, conscious decisions start to add up over time. In fact, uh, 70 decisions per day multiplied by 365, that gets us to 25,550 decisions per year. And then over the course of 70, 80, or 90 years, you're upwards of 2 million decisions that you make in your lifetime. You take uh, each one of those and analyze it, and you can't really get a, a good picture with just one decision, but as those decisions accumulate and mount up over time, you begin to see what's the driving force behind this person's life. What, are, what is their priority in life, and, and what do they really care about? Because your decisions will kind of shape and uh, show what you care about. We've been talking about the uh, great Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. He wrote, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. Oh, the places you'll go, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. You and I, we have decisions to make in our life. We have an ultimate goal, where we want to get in our life, places we want to go, things we want to do, but sometimes we, we choose not to, to, to go through with some of those decisions. We have that choice. Um, I think about the, the people, even in this room, middle schoolers and high schoolers, uh, who are kind of navigating through their education system, and they'll get to a point in their, their life on, upon graduation where they're faced with this massive decision. What do I do next? Do I enter the workforce? Do I attend college? Do I further my education? And when we get places like that, when we have the opportunity um, to line up and navigate our life to get to this um, choice, I think 
sometimes we take that for granted. We should be thankful for the times when we're able to control these choices because oftentimes, uh, and from my experience, these choices kind of come at us uh, whether we're ready for them or not. Life, um, you know, stress, these circumstances are foisted upon us in, in things that we, we didn't really plan for, we didn't really want, we didn't really foresee coming. Choices that might make us uncomfortable. There's an Austri- Austrian doctor named Viktor Frankl, and he was a neurologist, a psychiatrist, I believe, psychiatrist or psychologist, one or the other, not really sure, but his uh, biggest distinction for his life probably was that he was a survivor of the Holocaust in World War II. He was taken from his family. He was taken from his livelihood, his job, and placed in a concentration camp. This decision was made for him. It's not something that he ever planned on, but upon reflecting on his time in the concentration camp, Dr. Viktor Frankl said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. This man certainly was in some unwanted and unforeseen circumstances, but for him the most important thing was what attitude am I going to have throughout this process? It's uh, today we're not going to be talking about what is the right decision or what's the wrong decision uh, for your next you know, crisis or for your next unwanted circumstance because there's over 2 million <laughs> decisions that you'll ma- make across your lifetime. You don't necessarily know what's right or wrong, but today we're going to be talking about what is the right attitude to have as we navigate through this thing called life. Dr. Frankel's quote is very reminiscent of what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians. And he too was sitting in a prison cell. You think about a room that has open doors. Well, a room that doesn't have any open doors, that's, that's a prison. And, and Paul is sitting in prison writing a, a letter to the Philippians, and he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning, that whatever life throws at us, that we don't know what the future holds, but we know that we can control our attitude, that we can trust in the Lord with our future. Um, Jesus kind of gives us some instructions in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. He talks about some adverse circumstances that that life throws at us sometimes um you know the the sermon on the mount starting in matthew chapter 5 jesus takes some of these um common jewish laws things that uh, people followed and wisdom for the day he takes these these commands and says it's not so much anymore about your behavior on the outward side of things but what i really care about is what's your inner attitude. What's, what's your heart motive behind your, your decisions? And so Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus takes the Jewish law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And many times, you know, from the outside looking in, when we look at the Old Testament, a lot of times people say, wow, Old Testament God is bloodthirsty. That is savage. Like, seriously, that's the law. If you break your ankle on accident because someone did something and you get to go back to them and break their ankle in retaliation, is that really what this law is saying? In reality, that's, that's not the case. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is called the lex talionis. And really, this is the maximum limit for revenge. Jesus is intro, or, uh, The Old Testament is introducing the beginning of mercy. Where instead of uh, going up to someone uh, and responding in anger and irrationality, a lot of times when we want revenge, we're not thinking clearly, right? But, but God sets a, a, a maximum limit for the amount of revenge that we can, uh, that we can get. When I was in eighth grade, I was walking in my school in the hallway between classes. Everyone was out there. I kind of had my radar on, like, okay, who do I need to impress? How can I look cool today? And all of a sudden, my arch nemesis, Michael, is walking behind me in the hallway. And Michael gives me a flat tire. You guys know what a flat tire is? Where you're walking, and Michael stepped on the back of my shoe, on my heel, and uh, it's really annoying because the person who gets the flat tire, like their shoe falls off and you start tripping and everything. I felt like a, a moron. So I picked up my shoe and I want to get my revenge with, with Michael. I take my shoe and I smack him in the face. And I realized that uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was just like totally blew past that uh, limit there. Right? I didn't really... Um, get even with with Michael. I went way above and beyond. You know, the punishment did not fit the crime. And that happens with us all the time in life. Because revenge, retaliation, retribution, it's illogical and irrational. uh, But it is so human nature to just go above and beyond. I want to show you guys a video here. This was uh, from the baseball world, okay? Last October in the playoffs, the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays faced off, um, and things started to get a little heated. And much like I'm describing, people wanted to get revenge, and it just kept building and building and building, and it kind of uh, overflowed into this season. So go ahead and check out the screen. Watch this video. I mean, these guys are just absolutely losing their mind and anger and trying to get revenge after, you know, one offense after another, right? Jose Bautista hits the uh, home run, unties the game, wins the series for Toronto, and does a little bat flip, which uh, some people think is against the unwritten rules of baseball. So Texas is mad, spills over into this season, Bautista's batting. And the guy throws a 98-mile-an-hour fastball into Bautista's ribs to get even, right? 
So Bautista's on first, and he wants some revenge. So he slides hard into second base, and the second baseman's mad. So he punches him in the face, and then everyone's out there going crazy. And that's just the, the nature of revenge. We can never um, get enough. We can never get even with someone because people are going to take it way further than it needs to go. It's so illogical, but it's totally human. And, and, and so the law says, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. There is a limit to the revenge. But then Jesus comes along and says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And Jesus starts to give us three pictures, three circumstances that we might face in our life that are unwanted and brought on by other people around us, things that we might not plan for. And the first one is the image of being slapped in the cheek. Now, this isn't, uh, this isn't an example of being in a fist fight or, you know, Rugnet Odor isn't coming at you, getting ready to start a real Donnybrook or anything like that. Being slapped on the right cheek was, was a symbol in that day of a great insult. So 90% of the population is right-handed, and so if you were to slap someone on the right cheek, you're taking your right hand and you're backhanding them in the face as a symbol of saying, you are trash to me, you are garbage, you are worthless. It's a huge insult. And what do we do when we get insulted? When I get insulted, if someone tells me that I'm trash, right, I say, your mom's trash. That's not, that's above and beyond, man. I mean, come on. There's got to be a limit here. But Jesus says if you're insulted, if that's the circumstance you find yourself in, what is your attitude that you should have in this situation? And, and I think Jesus is teaching me that if you are insulted, the attitude that you should have throughout this circumstance is to remember your identity in Christ. That, that Jesus says that you are loved and you are uh, worth it. You are enough. You have a purpose in life. You are a child of God. When I'm insulted, if I can remember that, if I can um, cling to my identity in Christ, then there's no need for me to respond. There's no need for me to, to get revenge or retaliation upon the person who's insulting me. I am so... Um, consumed with, with my identity in Christ. I can say, I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. I'm not going to, you know, trash who God made you. I'm not going to reach out in anger and say something to you. He goes on in verse 40 and says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And this is another cultural reference to, to what is your possession and what isn't. I think what Jesus wants to teach us in this is that our possessions shouldn't, uh, shouldn't come in, in the way of our relationships. That when people have unfair expectations or unfair demands on our lives, that we shouldn't hold a grudge or we shouldn't try and, and get back at them in any sort of way, but we can hold our possessions loosely and say, if, if this is what you want or need, then, then take it. I trust in the Lord's provision. The things that I have aren't my own. I'm just uh, holding them for, for God. They're His to begin with, so you can take it. I'm not going to let these get in, in the way of our relationship. 
And in verse 41 is where I want to spend uh, most of the time uh, focused on this morning. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This, uh, this picture, this example, illustration is something that I never really understood uh, when I read it, you know, growing up. I, I thought of, you know, my mom, you know, she would want our family to go for a walk after dinner, you know, every week or something. And so, you know, we kind of did it begrudgingly. It's like, really, I want to be, you know, back home playing Xbox, but my mom's making me go for a walk right now. Is that what this means? No, no, I don't think so. If you're out hiking with some friends and they're, like, really athletic and they're leaving you in the dust, like, does it mean that they're forcing you to go another mile? No. If you just downloaded the uh, Pokemon game and you're with that friend who's like, there's a Poke stop a mile away, let's get there. Whatever you want to do, forget it. We're going there. No, that's, that's not what this passage is talking about. The, the audience, Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, they, they were listening to Jesus, and they knew what Jesus meant when he talked about being forced to go a mile because they lived in occupied territory. They paid taxes to the Roman Empire. The Roman soldiers would patrol their streets When a Roman soldier would tap a a citizen on the shoulder with their spear, then that citizen was forced to perform duties for that soldier, whether it be giving them food or performing a menial task. But most most often, if a soldier tapped you on the shoulder, he he needed your help because he was on, on his way from point A to point B, and he had a ton of equipment, luggage, baggage, whatever. He didn't really have the little airport rolly thingy here that you can you know, walk through Jerusalem like that. So he would force you to carry that, that that baggage. The law was, the Roman law was that you had to carry it for one mile and then your duty was done. It's not an American mile, it's actually about a thousand paces. So I picture all the people who had been tapped on their shoulder before, right? They're taking all of this stuff and they're carrying it and they're struggling and then as soon as they take that 1,000th step, then they can just drop it and then go back home and carry on with their life, whatever they were doing. I don't know if they were playing with their kids or fixing dinner or working, but if a Roman soldier tapped you on the shoulder, you had to follow that rule. You had to go one mile. And Jesus says, he literally tells us to go the extra mile. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. I I think about, like, that person who goes two miles. Not only are you going two miles out, but then you've got to turn around and come back. That's four miles total. You don't know what the terrain is that day. You don't know where he's going. You don't know how much you're going to have to carry. You don't know what the weather's going to be like. It could be muddy out there. So I call this the original Tough Mudder. Has anyone done a Tough Mudder in here? Tough Mudder, it's it's like an obstacle course race that uh, they set up all this, you know, mud and stuff. This is a picture of my sister and her fiancé doing the Tough Mudder back in Ohio. Up in the top left, like literally crawling through uh, muddy water. In the top right, that's her fiancé, Randon, pulling her up over an obstacle. And in the bottom right, um, a group of them are carrying this massive heavy log 
um, a, a certain distance. And so in a Tough mutter, if you complete the Tough mutter, you get some pretty cool swag. You get a headband and T-shirt, maybe a medal, something cool like that. But in the original Tough mutter, if the Roman soldier tapped you on the shoulder, you weren't getting any prizes for, for completing that. Uh, physical task for going four mi- for going two miles, four miles, however however long you went, there was no reward for that. It was expected. Uh, just uh, so you guys know, my sister wanted me to to tell you that she would have much rather have stayed home and been eating and watching Netflix, but uh, she did the tough mutter with with her fiance, which I thought was pretty funny, because that's uh, that's a lot of our attitudes too. We we want the comfort of home. We want the comfort of the routine. We don't want to be interrupted or distracted or pulled out of what we're used to. But Jesus says that that happens. Circumstances can interrupt us. People can interrupt us. And the attitude that we should have throughout that process is one of generosity, is one of of serving, one of excellence where you go above and beyond, right? In verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Throughout this whole passage, I think Jesus is trying to knock the point home in our skulls that Christians should be the most generous people on the planet because everything that that God has done for us, that we can give back to the people around us, Christians should be generous. That should be an attitude that we have through everything. When Jesus uses the word forces you to go, some translations interpret that as compels you. This, uh, this word, the Greek word angoreo, is found three times in, in the New Testament. It's obviously found here in Matthew chapter 5, but the other two times it's found are in the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, one by Matthew and one by Mark. In Mark chapter 27, verse 32 It says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. The soldier tapped Simon on the shoulder and said, hey, step in. It's your turn. What do we know about Simon? He's from Cyrene, which we know is a a city in northern Africa, modern-day Libya. Okay? Uh, It was heavily populated with, with Jewish people in the city of Cyrene, and so the fact that Simon is in Jerusalem, he's probably a Jewish man there celebrating the Passover, probably a once-in-a-lifetime trip, I would imagine, because it's over a 1,000 miles to get from Cyrene to Jerusalem. I don't know if he took a boat through the Mediterranean or if he walked through Egypt and along the coast to get there. But he's doing his own thing. He's there on a, a pilgrimage celebrating a Jewish Passover, and the soldiers tap him on the shoulder. I don't know if he was following Jesus, you know, throughout that process, or if he was just on the side of the road, because the Roman soldiers, if they were taking a prisoner out to be executed, they paraded that prisoner through the streets. They wanted all the citizens of the the city to see, if you're a criminal, if you break the law, uh, we will get justice, we will execute you, and this will happen to you. So they like to show it off. So maybe Simon was just kind of minding his own business, and all of a sudden, this parade of Roman guards and prisoners come by, and 
Simon gets tapped on the shoulder. What happens next? I mean, I, I, I think he's, he's, he's carrying Jesus' cross. The Roman soldiers are holding a sign that says, King of the Jews, and Simon's saying, I'm, I'm a Jew. This man doesn't seem like uh, he's a criminal, like he's broken any laws. I, I, I just wonder what Simon's life looked like after this encounter. We get... Um, a better picture, I think, in Mark chapter 15, we can connect some of these dots. And Mark writes, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Mark, the gospel writer, he's, he's a traveling companion with Paul. The book of Acts mentions Mark uh, several times. and So I, I think uh, you look at what Mark is writing and who he's writing to. Scholars believe that Mark was written in the city of Rome to a specific target audience, the Roman Christians and churches of that day. And for Mark to include these details, it's important. He, he probably wrote this while his friend Paul was sitting in a Roman prison cell. But Mark is writing to these Roman Christians saying, this is, this is the account of Jesus. This is everything that happened to him. When he was crucified, they were going along the road, and they got this man named Simon of Cyrene. You guys know Simon because you know his sons, Alexander and Rufus. right? And I think Rufus is a pretty baller name myself. Um, <laughs> but what happened... Uh, how did these guys get uh, mentioned in this account? Why was it important for Alexander and Rufus? It's because they had some name recognition with these Roman Christians. They had some level of prominence among the early church in Rome. In uh, the book of Romans, written by Paul to the Roman Christians, he says in, uh, in chapter 16, verse 21, it says, greet, Ru greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who is like a mother to me. I don't know how many Rufuses there, there were back then, uh, but I think the fact that Mark included the name of Alexander and Rufus in his writing to the Roman Christians, and Paul is writing to Roman Christians as well, and he says, greet Rufus, I don't think that's a coincidence. Same guy that the family of Simon of Cyrene was so close with Paul that they loved him. And, and uh, Rufus's mother, Simon's wife, was like a mother to Paul. How cool is that? In Acts chapter 11, Acts is all about the, the story of the early church and how the gospel spread. The, the Great Commission went from, you know, uh, the Jews all the way out into the ends of the the earth. In Acts chapter 11, it says, Now those who had been scattered traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Remember our friend Simon, he's from Cyrene. I wonder if he was included in this group. I wonder if that day when he encountered Jesus, their paths literally crossed 
I wonder if he stuck along. I don't think Simon took his 1,000th step and dropped the cross and went back to what he was doing. I think he stayed on Golgotha and watched the Savior of the world and his compassion up on the cross and saw the mother of Jesus, Mary, weeping and mourning. I think he stuck around and, and, and realized this is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God. I, I'm going to go tell people. I'm going to tell everyone that I, that I know about this man named Jesus. And his trajectory of life just changed on that day. His family changed on that day. They were influential in the early church. In Acts chapter 13, uh, there's a list of early church prophets and teachers. And in that list is uh, the name Simeon, which is often translated Simon, alongside a guy named Lucius of Cyrene. I think there's a, a connection there, that these men were among the early prophets and teachers who actually commissioned two men, Barnabas and Saul, to go out on their missionary journeys. That no longer, it, uh, they take the gospel and no longer keep it amongst a select group of people, the Jewish people, but they take it to the ends of the earth. They take it to the Greeks, the Gentiles. And you and I today, in 2016, in Scottsdale, Arizona, sitting in church, I think we owe a lot of our faith to men like Simon of Cyrene, who said, I, I've encountered Jesus. I want, to, I want to spread the news. Yeah, he was in um, unfamiliar territory, unwanted circumstances. He was forced to do a task that he didn't want to do. But because of his attitude, because of his willingness to, to obey, I think he encountered Jesus. I think he changed, his life was changed on that day. So the lesson for us today is even in the midst of these circumstances, I don't know what it is for you. If it's a relationship curveball that you've gotten recently, that it's not working out the way that you had planned it. Maybe it's a job that you're in that you don't enjoy, that you would rather be doing something else, that it isn't really shaping up what you hoped it would be. Unforeseen events have transpired. Maybe it's uh, an internal struggle that's going on in your mind that external voices have said things about you that may be insulting, they may be not true, but you've allowed them to be true in your mind. These unwanted, uncomfortable, unplanned situations that we're in. I think that we still have an open door in front of us. Like Dr. Victor Frankl said, that, that open door in front of us is the ability to choose our attitude in these trials, in these situations. There's two opportunities that we face. One is the opportunity to obey, to have this attitude of generosity, this attitude of contentment, of forgiveness, of hope, and of love. And no matter what happens, I'm going to stay true to my relationship with God, that I trust His plan for my life, I'm not worried about my possessions. I'm not worried about my wealth, my popularity, or my reputation. But everything that I do from here on out, I want to glorify God. I want to follow Him.
That's an opportunity that we have to obey. The second opportunity is the opportunity to simply encounter the Son of God. Many of us have encountered him before already. Some people in here may not have encountered him before, but, but Jesus can use our circumstances to show us who he is. That we can trust him in spite of things that look dire. That we have an eternal hope. That we can be changed and given a new identity. That we know that we are loved. We know that Jesus took my place on that cross. And I have a new purpose in life. As the band prepares to come back up here, would you, uh, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we think about all the decisions that we face every single day. We think about the decisions that are placed in our lap, um, sometimes unwillingly. Life is tough. But God, help us to seek you through, throughout all of these circumstances. Help us to obey you. Help us to glorify you. Help us to have an attitude uh, where we just seek you because your presence, Lord, is, is heaven for us. We may not be able to control the, si the situation around us, but God, we can control the way that re we respond to them in a way that's honoring to you, that shows love to the people around us, and shows grace, and shows humility, and dignity, and strength, that all flows from our submission to you in any given circumstance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Would you all stand? I want to challenge us this morning that uh, when we walk out these doors that uh, we can't control everything. We can't control uh, the people around us. We can't control decisions that people make. But we can't control our attitude. I want to challenge us this morning to keep Christ first, to keep Christ the center of your mind, the center of your heart, to be a blessing to the people around you, even if they're insulting you, if they're causing unfair demands in your life, or if they're forcing you to do something that's uncomfortable or not uh, what you planned on doing. Because of our identity in Christ, we can be a blessing to the people around us. We have freedom from the chains uh, of slavery, of bondage, of fear. We can learn the secret of being content in every circumstance. Before you go, we have prayer partners over on the side there, and there's a prayer table back in the corner under the lights. If you'd like to record a, a prayer request, we'd be grateful and willing to pray for you this week. Uh, but I love you guys, and I thank you for the opportunity to stand before you this morning. Have a great week.